Americans are suffering an overload of abundance. We're in overload mode here in the United States, and I would imagine in most of the Western world that is true, not to mention other places around the globe. Let me give you some illustrations of this as it relates to us who are living in America. We're in choice overload. Alvin Toffler, who wrote a book some 50 years ago, he was a futurist, and the title of the book was Future Shock. And one of the things he predicted was that we would live in an era of over-choice. We'd have too many choices to make. In 1978, if you and I had gone into a supermarket, and some of us are old enough to have done the shopping then, we would have been faced with a possible 12,000 choices. By 1991, just 13 years later, that had more than doubled to 25,000 choices. Now, factor in the 27 years which has intervened since that last statistic, and undoubtedly it would have doubled again. We have choice overload. Do you ever feel overloaded, overwhelmed by choices that are before you? Not just in the supermarket, but in life. I'm sure you do. Then we suffer from hurry overload. The great psychotherapist Carl Jung said this about hurry. He said, hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. And we feel bedeviled, do we not? Because of the hurried nature of our lives. We always seem to be in a hurry to get somewhere, not to be late, to be on time, if not early, when we arrive there. There is a Finnish proverb that goes like this. God did not create hurry. That's true. Have you noticed how frequently God says in His Word, wait, wait, wait? We have lost the fine art of waiting and especially waiting on the Lord to hear from the Lord. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian dissident during the Cold War, perhaps you've read some of his works, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denichevich, being one that stands out in my mind. But this is what he said about the 20th century in which he lived. He said, hastiness and superficiality are the two psychic diseases of the 20th century. It's true, isn't it? Do you suffer from hurry overload in addition to choice overload? Here's one more illustration. I could give a dozen, but this is the last one which I'll allude to. What about the information overload? Unbelievable. Do you know... If you and I were to get a copy of the New York Times Sunday edition and read it today, we would discover, comparing it to 17th century Great Britain, that there is more information in that one edition of the New York Times than the educated Britisher would have had at his or her fingertips in an entire lifetime. We suffer from overload. When the overload in your life or my life exceeds our power to deal with that overload, 
we find ourselves in a state of burnout. Is there anyone here who's burned out? Burned out physically? Burned out mentally? Burned out spiritually? Well, the good news for us is that there is answers to this problem in the Scripture. And I might add, any problem that you and I face, if we really want an answer that works, we are to go to the Word of God because it is repository of all things wise. We go every place instead of the Bible. It's amazing, and I'm no different than you. We go often looking for answers when the answers are at our fingertips in God's Word. Please take your Bible. Turn with me to the book of Second Timothy, chapter 1. Second Timothy, chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 through 7 in the discussion of this whole issue of burnout from God's point of view. 2 Timothy 1.1 reads this way, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, an equally good translation of the word in the original language would be fear. So I'm going to substitute the word fear for timidity. Let me read that again. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of Self-discipline. Timothy is different than we are in many ways. He's different because he lived in a different epoch in history. He's different because he was in a different culture. But I'm going to bet that when we look at his challenges in his life, the reasons for his burnout... This is why Paul says, fan into flame the gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands. His flame had died down. He had not totally flamed out, but he certainly was suffering burnout. And it probably was of all the varieties that I mentioned earlier, physical, mental, and especially spiritual, which is the foundation upon which a life that is burnout resistant is to be built. But he was a man who was suffering. Here are the reasons for his burnout. There are two which surface in this passage of Scripture. The first of which is that his assignment created burnout in his life. What was his assignment? Well, since you're in the vicinity, hold your place there. In First Timothy, Second Timothy rather, chapter 1, and go to First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writes to Timothy, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus 
so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote yourself, devote themselves rather, to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. And if you'll look down to the 18th verse of the same chapter, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight. Paul tells Timothy, don't leave Ephesus. Why would he say that? Well, here's the answer to that question. You can't. Now could go with me if you can get there to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and look what Paul writes about the state of affairs in Ephesus where he was at the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, where Timothy was with him at that time and where Timothy found himself when he received both 1 and 2 Timothy, the letters to him. He was in effect assigned the responsibility to pick up the baton that Paul had left. He was the leader of the church in Ephesus, a very important church. Look what Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 8. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. These people who were false teachers, whom Paul told Timothy it was his responsibility now to confront them in their false teaching and let the body of believers there know the difference between that which is true as far as the gospel is concerned and that which is false. And then he says to Timothy, so you can... Fight the good fight. You need to recall what happened when you were set apart for this task. The good fight. Now, if you know anything about Timothy, Timothy not only had a daunting assignment, but he also had a temperament which was not suited for conflict. Why do we know this? Well, actually, in the text that we look at in 2 Timothy chapter 1, remember how Verse 7 begins, For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Why would he even mention that if it was not something that Timothy was wrestling with? He was a young man. This is what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.12. Don't let anyone look down on you, Timothy. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. He's a young man. Undoubtedly, these False teachers were older men. And they said, how do you, such a youngster, have any right to tell us what is true? We've been around a lot longer than you have. Paul, when he said to him that God had not given Timothy a spirit of fear, he included himself. God has not given us. He was not using that just to patronize Timothy, make him feel good that he was the only one who was really afraid. Paul also knew this in his ministry. In the book of 1 Corinthians, excuse me, in the book of Acts, when Paul was in Corinth, this is found in Acts chapter 18, 
Paul was suffering very little success in the spread of the gospel. He was ready to pack up his bag and leave to go somewhere else. When Jesus came to him in a vision by night, and this is what Jesus said to him. He said, stop being afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Really, the grammar of that last command, do not be silent, means never start being silent. For I am going to protect you. No man is going to attack you. No man is going to harm you here. For I am with you. And Timothy was conscious of that. Timothy knew that. Paul had undoubtedly told that to Timothy because Timothy had been working with the Apostle Paul at that time and he knew that there was a plan to leave town and then all of a sudden it was abruptly changed and it was based upon this vision that Christ gave and the word of encouragement which he gave to Timothy. Do you know it helps to know that other people are afraid when you're afraid? And it helps us to grow in courage, especially when we are reminded that we're not alone simply without people around us, but Christ is with us. If we know Jesus Christ, our assignment is not going to be above our capacity to meet that assignment. Understanding, yes, we are people who are weak, but that does not disqualify us. You know what... Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, When I'm weak, then I'm strong. How does that work? Here's how it works. Each of us is weak. But we have someone in us who is ultimately strong. Through whom we can do whatever is given to us to do as far as, as, as an assignment is concerned. Timothy had a tough assignment. Paul had had one too. Timothy had watched God empower Paul to accomplish his leadership responsibility. Timothy was part of the team. But it's different just being part of the team as over against being part, being the leader and not just simply a part of the team. But here we see the Word of God coming to this young man, Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. For just a moment. First Timothy chapter 5. Look what is said here in verse 23. There's another indication that Timothy had this very sensitive spirit. First Timothy 5.23. He says, Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. So, Evidently, Timothy was a teetotaler. He knew he had freedom to drink wine. The Bible would give him freedom to do that. But out of deference and concern for those around him who might have a problem with alcohol, he refused to do anything except drink water when they would gather together. He didn't look down his nose at them. He just didn't want to be a stumbling block to other people. And that would be true for you, I would hope, and for me, that we would not, just in relationship to wine, but anything, do anything that would cause a weaker follower of Christ to stumble. We would hate to do that. It would be better for us, Jesus says, 
to pull, put a millstone around our necks and be thrown into the depth of the sea than to make someone stumble. And I think that's probably what was going on with Timothy. But he had need to take some wine because wine was a good remedy for stomach problems. Now, has anyone besides me had a stomach ailment that had nothing to do with a bacterial infection or a viral infection? Has anybody besides me had that happen to you? I have. I've had both kinds, or all three kinds for that matter. Well, I remember a dear brother in our church. He's gone to be with the Lord. His mother and father had grown up, and they didn't imbibe in alcohol at all. They were older than I am now, and the father had begun, had begun rather, to suffer from heart ailment. And his doctor told him, he said, Now, Mr. Stone, I want you to take about four ounces of wine every night before you go to bed. It's going to help you with heart health. And so Mr. Stone did that. His son, Harry Stone, a member of our church, went for a visit. He knew that his father and mother, mother joined in, by the way, in this experience, just as a precautionary measure, I might add, of course. And so when the evening came to an end, first night that Harry was visiting, his father said, Harry, now, your mother and I know you've never seen us drink, but we're going to be drinking some wine tonight because the doctor told us to. He said, yes, Dad, I understand that. I knew that already. Okay. And so he went to the refrigerator, and he came out of the kitchen. He had two mason jars filled with wine. Now, that's a little more than six, four ounces, right? right? I don't know how many ounces it be. And so he may have taken that to ex- extremes, Mr. Stone did. We're not to take the imbibing of alcohol to extremes for sure. But we see this young man, Timothy, was a young man who had stomach problems probably because he had nerve problems. He was very sensitive. And if that were not enough, look again at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 5, he writes to Timothy, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Was Paul a sadomasochist saying, I want to see you cry, it makes me feel good. That would be weird, wouldn't it? That was not the point. He wanted to see him because just seeing him would bring joy. But he recalled his tears and that made him think of Timothy. And the fact that this young man was weeping was another indication that he was a bit unstable. He was probably burning out. Now, let me pause and make this observation about Paul, too. Paul wept from time to time. Paul was a, Remember when he came to Corinth? How does he describe his arrival in Corinth? He said, I did not come with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I did not come with courage, he says. I came in fear and trembling. He was visibly shaken when he got up to preach the gospel. The Apostle Paul and Timothy was with him. Timothy had seen that. And Paul identified with his son in the faith, as he describes him, my dear son, my beloved son in the faith. Now, let me ask you, 
Do you have burnout in your life? Are you on the edge of burnout? Or do you have full-blown burnout? And if you don't have either, please pay attention to the rest of the message. Because it gives us a way that we can tend the fire that is currently burning in our hearts because of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's just one short step, actually, from a place of balance in our lives spiritually. And our fire is burning and it goes out almost overnight. But what would your issue of burnout be? Maybe it's your assignment. Perhaps it's being a mother or a father. Sometimes it's so difficult to be a parent, isn't it? And you never stop being a parent. I have a 40-year-old and a 37-year-old. I love my children. I have two grandchildren. I love my grandchildren. I have a daughter-in-law. I love my daughter-in-law. I pray for them. I want to see the Lord's best in their lives. And throughout our lives, from time to time, we have situations which arise that cause stress and strain. Has anyone in here ever wanted to throw in the towel of parenting? Yeah, I can tell by the response virtually all of us have. Yeah. Thank God we picked it back up, though, correct? But sometimes your assignment as a spouse, a parent, a child, creates the scenario for burnout in your life. And you're worn out. Remember what Vince Lombardi, the great Green Bay Packer coach, said about being fatigued. He said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Probably this dear man, Timothy, a young man, a young man who had more vigor probably than Paul did on the physical side, but he just ran ran himself ragged doing things that really weren't necessary to be done because he was trying to keep peace in the community of faith there in Ephesus. And he was getting a lot of pushback. What is your reason? Maybe it's your temperament. Maybe not only do you have a tough assignment like Timothy did, but also you have a temperament that is inclined to melancholy and to burnout. Well, the good news for us is that the Lord is the one who knew what kind of temperament we would have. When He plugged in the genetic code and gave you the parents whom He gave you, He knew who you would become. And He had a plan for your life. It's a plan for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. We saw that last week. And so God knows what kind of temperament you have. He did not make a mistake. He cannot use someone else for the assignment that He has for you. So don't bemoan the fact that you may be more sensitive in your nature. And trust in the Lord. Watch God work in your life. Let's move on to recovery from burnout. We see the two reasons. Now we're looking at the recovery for burnout. And the... The basis of this is found in verses 5, 6, and 7. The first of which is this. Review your faith journey. This is the first thing we must do, is review our faith journey. Look in verse 5, what Paul writes to Timothy. 
I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. He caused Timothy to think back. Timothy, go back. Remember your spiritual heritage. Your grandmother, Lois, the one in whom it first lived, this faith, and your mother, Eunice. And what kind of faith is it described as being? It's a sincere faith. Those words in itself would have encouraged Timothy, I believe, because he had doubted his own sincerity in the mix of all the trouble he was facing in his responsibility there. Think back on your beginning. Can you remember when you were born again by the living and abiding Word of God? Do you remember? Was that a great moment? Every once in a while, you need to go back to the starting point and see what that was like for you. And then succeeding points of growth in your life. The succeeding moments when it was an aha moment for you spiritually and you continue to develop. In the case of Timothy, he had run upon a roadblock. He had gotten off in a ditch somewhere because of the assignment that he had, his temperament. Those conspired together and he was on the brink of burnout. And he was needing proper encouragement. And the thing which Paul tells him to do, review your spiritual journey. Inherent in that would have included this. Think about what I have written about you, Timothy. You're my dear son. Not many people were known as dear sons of this greatest of apostles. Timothy was. Titus was. I'm not sure there's another figure in the New Testament to whom Paul wrote those kinds of words. That in itself should have been a big lift for this man, Timothy, whose mother and grandmother were devout followers of Christ, but whose father was not a believer. And Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Writing to them, he said, I'm going to send my beloved son, Timothy, to you, who is faithful. Not only was... Paul saying, in this section of Scripture, you have sincere faith, my dear son. But he had said years before, when things were going well for Timothy spiritually, he was not burning out. He still had the confidence that his mentor was with him. And certainly he knew the Lord. But something happens when you lose your mentor. I lost my mentor in April of this year. It was a big loss for me. But thank God he taught me the things that Paul taught Timothy. He taught me that whatever I find myself doing, and it will be true for you, you find yourself doing, Jesus is your mentor because He's with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. But then this is what He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. What does Paul say about his way of life in the book of Philippians chapter 1? What does he say? He says, for me to live is Christ. For Timothy, it was the same. In Philippians chapter 2, this is what he says to Timothy. And says about Timothy as he's going to send him 
off to Philippi to represent him because, remember, Paul was in jail at that time. He says, I hope to God that I will be able to send Timothy. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. All others are just interested in their own welfare, not the interest of Jesus Christ. You know how he has proven to be a faithful worker alongside me, like a son with his father in the spread of the gospel. Timothy helped write Philippians. When you look at the introduction of that letter from which I just quoted, the first verse says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. He was there. He was there when that letter was being written. He would have remembered this when Paul, his mentor, gave this statement, review your spiritual journey. That's for you and me today. Review your spiritual journey. Now the reality is, his faith is described as a living faith. Not just a sincere faith, but a living faith. Doesn't that make sense? When we trust in Christ, where does he reside at that moment and forevermore if we know him? Where does he live? He lives in us. Why? We have set apart Jesus Christ as Lord in our heart. And the reality is that we have Jesus with us and He is the life by His own description. And the life indwells us. What a great truth for us as we review our spiritual journey. Perhaps you're here and you're not sure that you've even started the first step on the journey. You've never come to know Christ. Well... Don't delay. Today could be that day. You can trust Christ. You may not know exactly how to go about it, but you just say, Lord, I need you. That's what it boils down to. I can't do this alone. I must have help. I've looked elsewhere, and everything I've resorted to to try to help me has left me still empty and adrift, a sense of uneasiness in my life. So here's the first step to recovery from burnout. What is it? Review your faith journey. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, we read from it a little earlier. Remember what Jesus says to that church? Remember the height from which you've fallen. If you know the Lord, and you may be religious, by the way, because the church at Ephesus was the most religious, most active church probably in the world at the time. And they were intolerant of false doctrine. They were orthodox. Their practice was correct. I mean, they were a veritable beehive of religious activity. You can be religious to the max, and it does you absolutely no good because you're doing it in your own strength to try to make amends to God. And all the work you and I would ever do to try to make ourselves right with God falls flat on its face. It is unacceptable to God because He says, All your righteous acts are like filthy rags. They do not make you acceptable to me. To the contrary, they make you unacceptable to me. So by faith, we enter into this relationship. Remember the height. If you're here today and you have fallen 
backwards spiritually. The Bible says the backslider in Proverbs 14, 14 will have his fill of his ways. Maybe you've had a fill of running your own life. You're done with it. You're tired. And you're needing some help. You walk with the Lord. He has not abandoned you. You have abandoned Him. Remember the height from which you have fallen. And what does Jesus say? Repent. In other words, put that behind you and go forward. Be done with that in favor of getting back on track with the Lord Jesus Christ and follow Jesus. Review your faith journey. Here's the second thing necessary for recovery. And that is to rekindle your fire. Look at verse 6 of 2 Timothy. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Fan into flame. Now I come from rather humble roots. And when I grew up, there was nothing I delighted more in than the season between Thanksgiving and Christmas because we would always go to see both sides of my family. Both sets of grandparents. My grandparents Woods, Papa and Mama Woods, and my grandparents Johnson, Papa and Mama Johnson. And we went. And it was so wonderful. But do you know, neither of those households had what we call central heat. All they had was a pot-belly stove at the Woods' house and fireplaces at the Johnson's house. So what would happen in the morning, if you've had those kinds of experience, if you've gone camping, you understand this. In the morning, what everybody would do, the first one up and the others who followed, they'd make a mad dash for the stove and put their hands behind their back. You know what I'm telling you? You know what I'm doing? Or to the fireplace. And many times, and most often... There was no evidence of any fire. The fire which had burned so brightly the previous evening had died down. And then someone would take a poker and poke into the fireplace or do some other thing or add some kindling to what hopefully would have been a flame. And before long, when someone would take a piece of cardboard or a bellows or something to try to blow softly on perhaps live coals, the fire would burst into flame and would give the necessary heat for the moment. Look, Timothy still had the gift of God in him. It was his responsibility to fan it into flame. The same is true for us. Do you know what the gift is that's mentioned here? There's been quite a bit of speculation about it, but I'm convinced the gift is the gift of the Holy Spirit. How does Jesus come to live in you if He lives in you? The same way He came to live in Timothy and Paul. The same way He will come to live in people who live after us. He comes by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit lives in Timothy and you and me. If the flame has grown cold and burning out, what do we do? We need to fan it into flame. We need to, we're going to talk in a moment how to go about that. In the Bible, one of the symbols for the Holy Spirit is fire. In the Old Testament especially, that's a figure of speech which is used to describe the Holy Spirit of God. And so what we know is that we have an obligation, fan it into flame. Here's the place 
to begin. Some of you know who the Holy Spirit is. Some of you don't. Jesus says this about the Holy Spirit. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper just like me. And He will be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. The world cannot receive Him because it does not behold Him or know Him. But you know Him, therefore He abides with you and He will be in you. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us at the moment of our coming to know Jesus. That's how Jesus lives in us. However, we need to maintain the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Bible says, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. The word filled literally means be controlled by. So we have to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit in order to tend the flame, to tend the fire, to blow on the coals, to keep them burning. It's our responsibility to do just that. And notice the way in verse 7 that Paul describes the Holy Spirit. Not a spirit of fear, but of three things. What are these three things? Power. You shall receive power, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Do you think that Timothy needed power? He was depleted of power. He needed power. And he had the source of power indwelling him. The Holy Spirit of God was living in him. So he had everything which he needed to do what he had to do. To face off with these men who were false teachers. To lead these people who, many if not most of whom were older than he, he needed the power of God. But he felt so weak. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, the Word of God comes through the prophet Zechariah to the man whom we know as Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the de facto king of Judah when Judah came back from exile in Babylon. And when he got there, his assignment was clear. He was supposed to rebuild the temple which had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And when he got there... Where the foundation of the temple had been, there was just a pile of rubble. And it looked like a mountain to him. And he did not know what to do, where to begin, how he's going to do this awesome job and responsibility of building this most sacred of buildings in all the world. And then the word of the Lord came through Zechariah to Zerubbabel. And this was the word of the Lord. Not by might, nor by power, But my my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then the Lord speaks to this mountain of rubble and He says, What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel's hearing this, by the way, before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. In other words, I'm going to just move all this stuff out of the way. It seems impossible for you to do anything about it. But by my power, the Lord says, may I take just a moment? to note what the words that God uses when He says it's not by might. Let me stop right there. That was the word which was used to describe the charisma of a great leader. We're all drawn to charismatic leaders. Probably without exception we are. We like someone who knows who or she is and knows where he or she is going and we quickly line up behind such people. We like those kind of people. Those take charge kind of people. But... God says, it's not by your charisma, Zerubbabel, that you're going to do this. 
And it would be true for Timothy, too. He was probably anything but charismatic. Not by your own personal force of personality. It's not going to happen, whatever it is. Not by power. The word power was a word which was used to the collective power of an army in Old Testament times. You can't get enough people around you that will enable you, Zerubbabel, to accomplish this. And the same was true of this man, Timothy. It was the Holy Spirit who was the one to do it. And in your life and my life, He is the one, the Holy Spirit. He is the one who will empower us. He's not only the Spirit of power, but He's also the Spirit of love. Now, I don't know about you, What I do know, because I'm turned in some ways like Timothy. But if I had been told what Paul told Timothy about the way he's to speak to these opponents who were many, remember, there are many of them. If I had been told that, and I finally got the power, I would want to run over them like a Mack truck. Wouldn't you? I'd want to let them have it. And I would have had the authority to do it, but that's not what God says. Look at 2 Timothy 2, 24. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. He's talking to Timothy. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Timothy probably had a bent toward that. Those who are melancholy and sensitive tend to hold grudges toward people who've opposed them. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. This is what happens when we have the love of God in us. The Holy Spirit is the author of that, correct? What is the first evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit? At the top of the list is love. When we have the love of God, the sacrifice of self in the service of undeserving others is what John Stott calls that. It's a good definition of the word. When we have that love, we are able to love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We are used by God. We need the Holy Spirit for power, right? In doing this life, fulfilling our assignments in life, overcoming temperamental deficiencies in our lives. But we also need love. But here's the last one. And self-control or self-discipline. At the end of the listing of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, if you know Galatians 5, 22 and 23, you know what the last one is? Self-control. They're like bookends. Love and self-control. The writer of Proverbs says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. What does that mean? Totally defeated. Either dead or defeated. A slave or dead. And the truth is, we must have self-control. Self-control helps us to say no to those things which lead to burnout. Did you hear that? Self-control is necessary for us to say no to those things which lead to burnout. And at the same time, the other side of the coin is self-control is that which gives us the power to live a consistent life. There's a king in the history of Judah. His name was Jotham. And this is what the Scripture says about him in 2 Chronicles chapter 27, verse 6. It says, Jotham became powerful because he kept an even course in the presence of the Lord his God. 
He was not a guy that just had these bursts of energy and then all of a sudden they dissipated. Then he had another burst of energy and then it dissipated. He did the unglamorous thing of taking one step at a time, one step, putting one foot in front of the other. Do you know the Christian life is not a marathon? The Scripture does tell us that we're to walk in the Holy Spirit, that is, by His power, with Him. Walk by or in the Holy Spirit. But it never tells us to run in the Holy Spirit. Never. We follow the Lord and we walk in the Spirit and watch Him work in our lives. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.14, Stop to Timothy, of course, from Paul. Stop neglecting your gift. Stop neglecting the fire. It's going to burn down because you're going to be scattering your efforts and your focus on all other things which will not amount to a hill of beans because you're not following the Spirit of God. So, here's the second step to recovery. Are you getting this? Review your personal faith journey, the history. Secondly, rekindle your fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit in you. Here's the last thing. Reorder your priorities. This is the last thing. What does that mean? Well, let me give you three ways that you can reorder your priorities. Before I do that, I would like to go back to Revelation chapter 2 for a moment. And when Jesus had a beef with that church, it's the only time that I recall Jesus ever saying, I hold this against somebody. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. What was the priority that had enabled the church at Ephesus to really be what God wanted the church to be? Its first love was Jesus. And He was the most important person above all other relationships in the lives of those people in that church. He was the focal point of that church. He was the focal point of their lives. But not only that, a second thing that was important about the first love, if you love me, you will love my disciples. If you love me, you'll love others too. So it's a package deal when we are people who have forsaken our first love in favor of other things. Then we are people who need to reorder our priorities. We need to put Christ back at the center of our lives. So we're to train ourselves first of all. Here's number one. Train yourself. In 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, the Bible says, Train yourself in godliness. Godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy 6, 6. Train yourself. The word, listen to the word train. It's a word that an English word is derived from. The word is gumnazo. The word gymnasium comes from that. The Christian life is a place to train. Many of you train faithfully. You train your bodies faithfully. You train your mind faithfully. What about the most important part of who you are? The core of your being, your soul, your spirit. Are you training yourself? And here's what we do. Primarily, if you'll do this, you will never go off track if you do it with the right heart. You will never... I mean, you'll have sort of little forays off the pathway, but soon you'll come right back. You'll train yourself to be godly. Well, this is how you do it. In the book of Jeremiah 23, 29, 
God asks a question through the prophet. And this is the question. Is not my word like fire? Do you remember in the book of Jeremiah, the 15th chapter, what Jeremiah said about the word of God? Your word I did find and I ate it. And it was sweet to me. It was nourishing to him. It was sustaining to him. It gave him joy, but it gave him strength. Train yourself to be godly, to be like Christ. There's one place to go, and that's to the Bible. Where do you begin? Well, I begin in the book of John. If you haven't done it, start in John and just begin reading. When you finish John, go to the next book and so forth and so on. To get the end, then start over again at the first part of the New Testament. Read it through again. Then venture into the Old Testament. It's the Word of God. But you get the good basis for the Christian faith in the New Testament. Here's the second thing. Not only train yourself, but look at the second thing that you need to reorder your priorities. It's train others. In 2 Timothy 2.2, the Scripture says this, You then, my son, be strong in the graces in Christ Jesus, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many people entrust to reliable men or faithful men who will also be able to teach others. So this is great joy. This is what had happened in the relationship between Paul and Timothy. He had trained Timothy. The things which you've heard from me, Timothy, I'm your disciple. Remember, the things which you've heard from me. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians 4, 9 about this? He said, whatever you have learned or received, or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Timothy had heard that, and he understood it again as he was reflecting on this. Train others. And in order for that to happen, in 2 Timothy 4, 5, the Bible says, do the work of an evangelist. You say, hey, I'm no evangelist. I can't talk in front of people. Well, let me ask you, do you talk to other people one-to-one? That's the most effective form that evangelism takes. Just simply sharing the person of Christ. Sharing what Christ has done in your life. And then in turn, sharing it with others. There's nothing that will cause you to get out of the rut of burnout that you may find yourselves in and stay out of it than making lifestyle evangelism a part of your life. Always looking for opportunities to share Christ. With others. Now, here's the third thing, and it is train with others. If you'll turn to one more reference in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2 22. Do you ever train with people? I know a lot of you like to train with others, and it's not just because you're gregarious. It's not simply because you don't like being alone. It's because you need accountability. Is that right? If you make an appointment to meet somebody at the gym at 5 o'clock tomorrow morning, I'm saying. I'm not talking about tomorrow afternoon. A.M. in the morning. You're going to be there. Why? Because you made a promise to a friend. You're going to be there. And you're holding him or her accountable. And she is holding you accountable. And there's great strength and accountability, isn't there? When you're holding each other accountable. In 2 Timothy 2.22, let's read what instructions Paul gave to him. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Find yourself some other people. Look around you. 
You probably know someone in this fellowship. If you don't, get to know people in the fellowship and get with some people and say, hey, I need you. I want to train with you spiritually. I need you to be my accountability partner. And that person will say, hey, come on. I need you too. We need each other. We know what the Word of God says. The Word of God says, do not, let, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called a day. Timothy was suffering from an encouragement famine in his life. He was out there alone. He was at the top of the food chain. And he was trying to lead these people. He needed help, didn't he? Train with others. As I finish this morning, what I'd like to allude to is something that I was taught Let me count the years. 46 years ago, almost 47 years ago, by my disciple, my mentor. When I finally understood what it meant to really follow Christ, not just to be a nominal Christian. I believe I knew Christ, but nobody had ever taught me how to follow Christ. And this man showed interest in me. And he told me the secret of maintaining the fire. And the secret was described in this way by the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, Bill Bright, who's with the Lord. He said, we need to practice spiritual breathing in this life as followers of Christ. We need to exhale and then inhale. We need to exhale our sin, as it were. And if we confess our sins, the Bible says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness. And that includes saying, Lord, help me not to do it again, whatever it is. If we confess our sins, it's like exhaling carbon dioxide. You'd die if you didn't get that out of your system, right? You would die. And spiritually, it's similar. But then, in addition to that, we have to inhale. Nothing like a good... Breath of fresh air, is there, into the lungs? We take it for granted. Don't even think about it until we're lacking air. You know what the inhaling part is? Being filled with the Holy Spirit. I've already talked about it. Trusting the Holy Spirit to control our lives. Giving Him full control of our lives. If we do that, we will be free of fear of burnout. Free of fear from People, free of fear from death, free of fear, period. Because we have the one who has abolished fear in us by His Spirit. Let's pray. If you've never received Christ, today is the day of your salvation, I would imagine. You came here today, perhaps not expecting to hear from God. and Maybe you've heard from the Lord today. And today's the beginning, we hope, of your journey, your faith journey. You'll be able to mark it from this point. If you are here and you have begun your faith journey, maybe years ago, decades ago, whatever, but you know you've fallen from where you were at your best point in your spiritual walk, don't you feel the need to get out of the burnout rut that you find yourself in? to follow the Lord again anew. Well, this day's for you as well. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for speaking to me today. 
I want to know you, Lord. I, I don't know that I do, but I really do want to know you. I want to ask you to take control of my life. I'm a little frightened about that, but I want to, Lord, because I sense I was created to be indwelled by you and to follow you. And I want the best for my life. Lord, I know you're the best. So please forgive me and take control of my life. Lord, I've known you for a a while, a long time, but I've drifted away and I'm asking you, Lord, to help me get back on track. Fill me with your spirit. Take control of me again. Thank you, Lord. Amen.